0: Abraham and Sarah had finally gotten settled in. Their years of vagabond wandering about living in makeshift tents were finally over when we get to chapter 22. Sarah had probably gotten her home decorated just the way she liked it. Abraham, we read last week, had started to plant a little garden. Their servants had probably learned the ins and outs of the surrounding countryside so that they could perfect the seasonal going and coming of the cattle and the sheep And best of all, there was Isaac, the child of the promise. He had finally been born, and now he was becoming a young man. He was proving to be a faithful son and an obedient son. He was learning to worship the God of his father. His shoulders were probably becoming broad. His face was becoming like that of a man. And everything for Abraham and Sarah seemed just right. They were living the American dream before America had ever been dreamt of. And now this... Now, after God had given them every conceivable earthly blessing, comes this. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Why? Abraham must have thought. Why this? Why now? Why Isaac? Lord, anything but Isaac. And that anything but Isaac in Abraham's heart must have answered his own questions why. Why now? Why Isaac? Well, because God had given Abraham much. And because like us, Abraham must have been tempted to love God's good gifts more than he loved God himself. And God's crowning gift, Abraham's prized possession was his son, his only son, whom he loved, Isaac. And thus, God knew that the loss of Isaac would be the keenest test of Abraham's faith in and love toward God. Would he still love God if God took away his good gifts? Would he still follow God if God took away his son, his only son whom he loved, Isaac? The questions that Abraham had to ask himself in verses one and two, and they're questions that we need to ask of ourselves Because whether we realize it or not, whether we're on the top end of the scale or the bottom end of the scale in this country, all of us are living the American dream. All of us have blessings piled to the stars when we compare to the people that live in the countries around the world. We are the people with the houses decorated like we want them and with the gardens planted and the flowers growing beautifully in our front lawns. We are filthy rich in this country. Just for contrast... In Ethiopia, the average workman makes $1 a day. They cannot even fathom having a car, much less having two or three like most of us have. They can't imagine having a house with two or three bedrooms. They can't imagine spending $5 on a meal at Burger King, which to us is nothing. We are filthy rich. God has blessed this country with ease and prosperity beyond imagination. And that ease and that prosperity means that therefore we probably more than almost any other people on the earth need our faith to be tested we need to discover whether or not we love God's good gifts more than we love God we need to find out what would happen if God took away our children or our spouse or our three meals a day or our home and some of us have walked through those times. Some of us have been through those shadowlands and discovered that God was indeed our God and that He was with us. And I just pause to address those of you who have suffered great losses like that to tell you that the rest of us desperately need your help. We need to hear your testimonies of God's grace. We need you to offer us hope and comfort when we follow you in the pathway of suffering. We need you through your experience and from the Word of God to offer us Comfort to give to us the God of all comfort. We all need to be tested. And I want to say something more about God's testing this morning than what I've said so far. I want you to notice that Abraham didn't wake up one morning and find that Isaac was missing or dead. It's not how it worked. As testing as that may have been, God didn't simply take Isaac away from Abraham. God actually gave Isaac the option of whether or not he would give Isaac up in obedience to the Lord. And that's a much bigger test, isn't it, parents? It's a much bigger test when God gives us the choice. It's the test that Ann Hasseltine's parents faced when they received the following lines from their would-be son-in-law, Adoniram Judson, that I've read to you before. He wrote this asking for her hand in marriage before they would go on the mission field. I have now to ask... Whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure for a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness, brightened by the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from the heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? What will I say if I get a letter like that someday from some young man who wants to marry Julia and take her to the mission field where she might die? What will I say if Andrew comes home from college someday and says, I want to go to Saudi Arabia, Dad, and preach the gospel, for I know that he will lose his head literally for doing so. What will I do if being faithful to Christ means losing my job or losing my health or forfeiting my family? The truth is, I don't know what I'll do until that moment comes. And neither do any of you. But God may require it of us. Therefore, we need to be tested. We need badly to find out whether or not we really love and treasure God most. We need to face tests like Abraham faced so that we can see who we really are, lest we deceive ourselves all the way To the gates of hell and find ourselves among the crowd saying, Lord, Lord, did we not? And Him saying, I never knew you. So I found myself studying this week and I found myself praying that God would hasten to bring persecution to our country. Praying that God would force us to choose between safety and Christ, between material stability, financial stability, and Christ between social acceptance and Christ, between life itself and Christ. And I'm not morbid when I pray that. I don't pray that because I want adventure. I pray that because I hope that I trust what James 1, 2 through 4 says. When James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking Nothing. Did you hear what he said? If we're going to be complete, we have to face various trials. And before we face them, I want us to learn from Abraham and the way he faced them. I want you to imagine the night that passed between verses 2 and 3. Abraham must not have slept a wink. Abraham must have tossed and turned in his bed. Maybe he got up and paced the floor, praying and crying and pleading with the Lord. Maybe he even found himself questioning God that night. I thought you said, God, that I was going to become the father of a multitude of nations. Chapter 17, verse 4. I thought you said, Lord, that through Isaac, my descendants would be named. Chapter 21, verse 12. How can it be that now I have to sacrifice him? It doesn't make sense, God. I don't understand what you're doing. And those are good questions that Abraham might have asked. We don't know, but I would have asked them. We're going to find answers to those questions in a moment. But before we do, I want you to simply notice that Abraham did what God said. Did he have questions? Surely. Was this a difficult task? More than any of us can ever imagine. But the difficulty of Abraham's task and the questions that he may have had did not provide him an adequate reason to disobey or to drag his feet when he had a clear commandment from God. And neither do they for us. You may have questions about God's will. Don't understand why he wants this or that. His will for you may be difficult, but that doesn't give us a reason to disobey or to drag our feet So Abraham, verse three, rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. He simply obeyed. And this is true obedience, doing what God says, even when we don't have all the details, doing what God says, even when God's instructions don't seem to make sense. Many times, God's instructions don't seem to make sense. But obedience is obeying God anyway. And frankly, most of us aren't very good at that. I'll give you an example. If you spend a lot of time uh, trying to teach the Bible to teenagers, one of them will eventually ask a question like this. Teacher, um, when is it okay for us to disobey our parents? I mean... What if our parents are completely off their rockers? Do we have to obey them then? Some of you know that that's what they think, right? What if our parents don't love God? What if our parents tell us to go steal a car? Are we supposed to obey them then? Or why do they ask that question? Is it because their parents are really off their rockers? Probably not. Is it because their parents really ask them to go steal a car? Doubtfully. Why do they ask those kinds of questions? Because they're just like us. They want to find a loophole. They don't want to take God's word at its face value, and neither do I and neither do you many times. We want to find a way around what's very clearly stated in the Scriptures. And so we become very good at the what-ifs and the yeah-buts and the excuses for why we can't do what God simply, plainly says. And if we can find a good enough what-if or yeah-but or excuse, then we feel justified in disobeying. We need to consider Abraham, because if anybody had a good excuse to second guess God, it would have been Abraham. God was asking Abraham to do something that seemed incredibly against the character of God. Sacrifice your own son. Would God really say that? Abraham was also asked to do something that seemed to contradict completely God's promises. God had promised to make Abraham great, to make him a great nation, to bless all the nations of the earth through him. And then he had narrowed the promise and said, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you, through Isaac. And now God says, sacrifice Isaac. So what God's saying to him doesn't make sense. And beyond all of that, as a parent, I can say that the most difficult thing of all may not have been God's promises or God's character But the fact that God was asking Abraham to do something that is more difficult than anything I can imagine doing. Yet with all those potential loopholes, which surely came across Abraham's mind, Abraham did exactly as God said. And shame on us if we fail to do the same in much smaller issues much less risky issues, much less confusing issues. Shame on us if we fail to honor the Lord's day, which is so clear. If we fail to give Him a tenth of our income. If we fail to drive according to the speed limit, since the Bible says obey the government. If we fail to obey copyright laws. If we fail to pay our bills on time. If we fail as husbands to love our wives and our children. If we fail as wives or children to submit to husband or dad. If we fail to give our employees a full eight hours but skimp off several minutes a day on the job just fooling around. Shame on us if we know what God says and we fail to be faithful. If we're not faithful in these little things, what will we do when the big tests come? tell you what some of us will do. We'll turn and run. We will find ourselves to have been fakes all along if we're not careful. Abraham obeyed God. The question I want to ask now is why? Was he just morally good natured? No, we've already seen in chapter after chapter what kind of a sinner Abraham was selling his wife as a prostitute, committing adultery and so on. So how does a sinner like Abraham come to a place where he is able to obey God so steadfastly in such a difficult situation? How does that happen for Abraham or for us? By faith. It happens when we believe that God, and not us, knows best. It happened when Abraham believed that God, and not Abraham, knew best. In this case, Abraham believed that God would do what he said he would do. God had promised to make Abraham, through Isaac, into a great nation that would bless all the nations of the earth. And Abraham simply took God at his word. said, okay, God said he would do that. And thus, Abraham believed that somehow, some way, God would spare Isaac's life in order to keep his own promise. Say, how do you know that Abraham believed that? Well, in verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham is not sugarcoating the situation here. Abraham is not lying. Abraham really believed that he and the lad would be, both be back. He really believed that because of God's promise concerning Isaac, that God would somehow, some way preserve the boy's life. And if we turn to Hebrews, you don't have to turn there if you don't like, but, but mark it in your notes. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 tells us what was going through Abraham's mind in verse 5. It says this, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. And here's the key. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. What was going through Abraham's mind here? Even if I sacrifice Isaac, God can raise him from the dead. So I'm going to do what God said and God will keep his promise. It's amazing to me. God's instructions seem to contradict both God's character and God's promises to Abraham. But instead of disobeying God's instructions or doubting God's promises, Abraham was busy brainstorming how God might make it all work for his good. It's amazing. And he came up with a solution. Resurrection. Perhaps that's what God's going to do. After I sacrifice Isaac, God is going to raise Isaac from the dead because God won't fail to keep his promise concerning Isaac. Isaac will live again. He and I will return to you. That's faith. Believing that God will work a seemingly impossible situation for your good so that you are able, in spite of your questions, to obey. Let me say that again. That's a, a definition of faith in difficult circumstances. Believing that God will work a seemingly impossible situation for your good so that you are able, in spite of questions you may have, to obey. And God worked the whole situation out. He did it in a way different from what Abraham thought as we're going to see, but the lesson is still the same. Abraham believed that God would do what he said he would do, and therefore he obeyed. And when all hope seemed lost, Abraham didn't give up. Abraham just thought deeper and deeper about the kind of God he served, and he came up with a solution. He came up with hope because he believed that God would do what he said he would do. Do you believe God like that? You have the kind of faith that when the going gets tough, doesn't default to brainstorming your own solutions, but defaults to brainstorming miraculous ways that God might work everything out for his for your good and his glory. Most of us, when we're in a pinch, start brainstorming solutions for how to get ourselves out. Abraham started brainstorming how God might come up with a solution and he waited for God to do it. And if we have that kind of faith, then we will have enough light at the end of our dark tunnel to keep going and to do exactly what God says. So think about that. Do I trust that God really will do exactly what he says, even when it seems like he's not? And will I act on it? Now let's take our focus off of Abraham for a moment and shift the lens onto Isaac. As we've put ourselves into Abraham's shoes, but we haven't stopped to think about how Isaac must have felt in all of this. It must have seemed a bit odd to him in verse 5 when his dad said, Leave the servants behind, just the two of us are going. He looks back, hmm, why is he leaving them behind? But Isaac just picked up the wood that one of the servants had previously been carrying and hiked along. But something else was nagging along in Isaac's mind. Something else was bothering him. They had all the ingredients for the offering. They had all the ingredients for a worship service where an animal would be sacrificed except the animal. They had the knife. They had the wood. They had the fire, but they didn't have the lamb. And so in verse 7, Isaac asks his dad, where's the lamb for the offering? And he gets this cryptic Reply, God Himself, God will provide for Himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. What? What? If you and I had been there, that's what we might have been saying. What? What do you mean, Dad? God will provide the offering, the the, the lamb for the offering. Do you think God is just going to snap His fingers and make a lamb appear out of nowhere? Don't you think that if God were going to provide the lamb that he would have probably done so by means of us actually taking one from our flock and bringing it with us when we left home this morning? See, none of us would fault Isaac for being confused at this point or maybe even from being frustrated with his dad's nondescript answer to his question. But if Isaac thought the kind of thoughts that we would probably think, at least he didn't say them. All we read in verse 8 is that the two of them walked on together. I have to pause here and reflect on why Isaac was so trusting of his dad. Why was Isaac so calm? Why was Isaac so unquestioning in this difficult situation, in this strange situation? Why did he just accept his dad's answer? Well, the text doesn't tell us exactly, but I think it gives us a hint. I want you to just scan down through their conversation together and notice how Abraham and Isaac keep referring to each other as my father and my son. That's not just a matter of calling a person's name to get their attention. They were walking together, they didn't need to call one another's names. And they weren't even using names, they were using terms of endearment. My father, my son. There's something happening in between them. There was a relationship there. A relationship where it seems like Abraham loved his boy and Isaac really looked up to his dad. Isaac must have admired his dad's faith, not only in this situation, but from the past. He must have seen his dad trust God for provision before. Maybe he'd even heard his dad say these same words in his ear many times as he grew up God will provide. My son. And no doubt he had seen God provide for them if he had eyes to see. So, just as an aside, I want to point out to you that young men like Isaac, who obey the Lord and obey their parents so faithfully, don't come out of nowhere. They come from parents whose faith is worthy of admiration, they come from parents whom they observe obeying the Lord even when it's difficult. They come from parents who believe and who live as though they believe the Lord will provide. Don't you want to be that kind of a mommy or a daddy or grandparent? Don't you want to be that kind of church for the young people that are coming up underneath us? Examples to them that the Lord is God and He will do what He said He would do. If we want children like that, we have to be parents and grandparents and adults like that. We have to teach them by example to trust God. The Lord, And look how they will turn out. Verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now here's where verse 6, which we didn't read yet, becomes really important. In verse 6, we learn that Isaac and not Abraham carried the wood. So Isaac must have been fairly close to being full grown at this point, strong enough to do heavy lifting, strong enough to do heavy lifting in place of his dad. In other words, when this story takes place, Isaac must have been stronger than his dad. So when we read verse nine, we know that this is no chubby little toddler that Abraham's tying to the stake. This is no scrawny 10 year old either. This is a big strapping teenager, probably. The kind of teenager that, though dad doesn't like to admit it, can now whip his dad in a wrestling match. That's what Isaac was. Abraham was over a hundred years old. So you start to get the picture of what's really happening here. The only reason Abraham is able to tie Isaac down to the altar is because Isaac is willing to be tied down to the altar. Why was Isaac willing? It seems that he was willing because his father's faith in the God of the impossible had rubbed off On him. He believed what his father said in verse 8. He believed that God would provide for himself the lamb. And apparently he had resigned himself that if God chose him to be the lamb, that God knew best. Just like Abraham had resigned himself to that fact as well. Say to you again 16 year olds like that do not come out of nowhere. They do not generally arise out of families that are mostly American and marginally Christian. They arise out of families where Christ has come to have first place in everything and where God is trusted completely. And we need to hurry on to the climax of the story. This is most important in these next verses. Just as Abraham hands... Trembling and forehead surely dripping with sweat, draws his killing knife. In verse 10, the angel of the Lord speaks, interrupts him. And in verse 12 says, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham passed the test. He had laid aside his doubts and his fears, and he had done what God said so that the angel could say, now I know that you fear God. Now, did God know ahead of time what Abraham was going to do here? Yes. The Bible teaches that God always knows the end from the beginning. Psalm 139, nine four, Proverbs 19, Ephesians two ten. You can look them up later. The Bible teaches that God always knows the end from the beginning. But Abraham had yet to prove his faith in and love for God in time and space. So in that sense, God was seeing that Abraham really did fear him for the first time in time and space. And in that sense, the angel could say, now I know that you fear God. And probably more importantly, now Abraham could say, now I know I fear God. The test was for Abraham's benefit so that he could see how strong God had made him in faith. You know who else passed the test in these verses? God. God passed the test. At the opening of the chapter, it seemed like God was forgetting all the promises that He'd made to Abraham. And if we had lived at the beginning of Genesis 22, we may have given up on God. But Abraham never gave up. And through his obedience to God, he gave God the opportunity to prove himself. And God came through, just like he always comes through. So we learn a lesson here as well. God's severe testings in our lives aren't merely meant to test and prove our faith, but also to give us a chance, through obedience, to test and prove God's faithfulness. God tests us to to test us and prove us. But he also tests us so that if we will just obey, we will get to watch him pass the test as well. We will get to see him be faithful as well. God always passes the test. There's always a ram in the thicket. And so Abraham, learning that lesson, called that mountain Jehovah Jireh or the Lord will provide. Some of you may have similar milestones in your life, probably nothing this uh, astonishing or severe, but milestones where God clearly provided in answer to prayer or clearly, clearly provided when you didn't pray. And you should put markers down like Abraham did to remind yourself that the Lord will provide so that when you're in the pinch, you have something to look back to and remind yourself to keep believing and to obey So we see in verses 15 through 18, then God reiterating his promises to Abraham and Isaac. He's kept his promise and now he reiterates it by saying... 16, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God proves himself and God reiterates his promise. In verses 20-24, through he anticipates for us who know the rest of the story, the fulfilling of that promise with the announcement of the birth of Rebekah, who is going to be Isaac's wife and who is going to be the mother of Jacob, who is the father of the nation of Israel. God was doing exactly what he said he would do. And so in verse 19, Abraham and Isaac returned home, having their faith tested and proven, having God's promises tested and proven and now reiterated, and everyone lived happily ever after. End of the story, right? No. Yes, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac lived happily ever after. But if we closed the book and went home right now, we would have missed the most important lesson in this story. The most important part of the story is that there's more to the story than Abraham and Isaac. This story is one of the brightest, most colorful portraits of Christ, our Lord, in the Old Testament. Let me help you see it. Like Isaac, Jesus faced the possibility of a sacrificial death at the hands of his own father. Like Isaac, Jesus took up the wood on which he was going to give his life and carried it into the countryside called Moriah, which now is the area around the city we know as Jerusalem. Same place. Like Isaac, Jesus had questions about his father's plan. If you're willing, take this cup from me. And like Isaac, Jesus, despite his questions, obeyed his father. Faithfully, not my will, but yours be done. That's where the similarities end, though, because for Jesus, there was no ram in the thicket. When Jesus faced sacrificial death at the hand of his father, there was no substitute. Jesus' father actually went through with what Abraham only contemplated, namely sacrificing his son, his only son, whom he loves and he did it for the sake of sinners. Isaac was spared. Romans 8:32 says God did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all. And there is the reason why there was no substitute for Jesus on that day outside Jerusalem, because Jesus was acting as the substitute for us. There was no ram in the thicket for Jesus because Jesus was our ram. In the thicket. And as verse 13 speaks of the ram's sacrifice for Isaac. We may speak also of Jesus' sacrifice for us. God went and took the ram, Jesus, and offered him up in the place of sinners. We may also, apart from Christ, apart from faith in Christ, picture ourselves in the place that Isaac was in in verse 10. With God's hand and God's knife poised Above us, ready to come down on our throats as a just penalty for our sins against his holiness and his justice. We need to hear this this morning, because when we look at Abraham's faith and we look at Abraham's obedience, we've set the bar very high for ourselves. And yet none of us, when actually tested, will pass with no marks against us. None of us will obey God fully as we ought. None of us trust God in everything as we ought. All of us find ourselves doubting and questioning and finagling and scheming and doing God's thinking for him. And many times we find ourselves in outright disobedience of God's clear commandments. And even if we, like Abraham, can grow to the place of maturity where we finally do pass the test one day, that still can't blow away the foul stench of our past. For all of Abraham's victory in chapter 22, he could not erase the fact that he had pimped his wife in chapter 12 and chapter 20. For all of his victory in chapter 22, he could not erase his adultery in chapter 18. And the same is true for us. It doesn't matter how much perfume you pour into a septic tank, the odor is still going to be there. It doesn't matter how much good you do, your past, your sin is still going to be there. And it doesn't matter how much good you do today, you cannot determine what you're going to do tomorrow. So if we're here today relying on being good people, relying on, oh, I've obeyed God, we're in bad shape. All of us deserve to die. All of us need a Savior. We need a substitute. We need a ram caught in God's thicket who will willingly lay down on the altar and bleed in our place. And in Jesus, we have that ram. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 1.29 We can only have Him though if, like Abraham, we trust that God will provide the lamb. We can only have Jesus if, like Abraham, we stop trying to create our own solutions and submit ourselves to God's solutions. We can only have Jesus if we accept God's lamb instead of trying to sacrifice our own through our makeups and our do-betters and our next times. We can only have Him if we, asking His help, will forsake our sins and give ourselves wholly to Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Have you really done that? Or are you still trusting in your do-betters? And if you are trusting in yourself, would you not just today repent of your sins, turn towards Christ and entrust yourself to Him? God's substitute For your sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, thank you for giving your Son for wretches, for thieves and adulterers, and people who tell lies, great and small. For people who are rude to their spouses and ugly to their children. For people who think murderous thoughts and lustful thoughts. Thank you for giving your son for people who question you and doubt you, ignore you and disobey you. Thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you that Jesus didn't come looking for people who were righteous, but to save sinners. Help us to see what we are. So that we will willingly accept. By faith. The lamb that you have provided. Your son, your only son, whom you love. We pray in his name. Amen.